0: To introduce Pastor Number Two, we're actually going to call up Pastor Number Three. So I'd like to ask Ben Gildner to come here. Ben Gildner, some of the most amazing sermons ever delivered at Evanston Bible Fellowship. Come on, Ben, come on up here. We're delivered by this guy. So that's all I'm going to say. Let's give him a round of applause.
1: Um, The proudest moment of my life was when I was named the pastor of this church. And the fact that I was only able to pastor it for 16 months instead of 16 years is the thing that I most regret in my life. And I still lay awake in bed at night feeling very bad about that. Um, And so even though those of you who are here will tell me it's not necessary, I wanted to say I'm very sorry that I wasn't able to be your pastor much longer than I was. Um, this morning. Now, this morning I have a difficult task because the majority of the people sitting here don't know who Martin McCorkle is other than his name. And I have two minutes to convince you that you owe him such a debt of gratitude, even if you've never met him, that you ought to give him a standing ovation when he comes up here. So here we go. There are scores of people that I could introduce this morning whose contributions and gifts and sacrifices were crucial to the formation and foundation and the initial growth of this church. That said, I suspect that all of those scores of people would agree that the single most important contribution was made by the man who's going to give the sermon this morning. You have to understand That when you're talking about 30 or 40 people meeting in a middle school auditorium where the seats are so narrow that you walk out of the service dreaming about how wonderful it would be to sit in coach class on a major airline, (laughs) that you're not coming back the next week because of the amenities. You have to understand that when there's 80 or 90 people meeting in a pink dance hall on the edge of downtown Evanston and you get to the pastor's office by yanking a rope out of the ceiling that brings a rickety old ladder down so that you can shout up to Martin who's working on his sermon in the winter in an unheated office wearing a parka that you're not coming back and you're not inviting your friends to come back the next week because of the amenities. And you're not coming back because the preaching is good. You can get good preaching elsewhere and get the amenities too. If you're coming back the next week and you're inviting your friends to come back the next week, it's because the preaching and the preacher are simply outstanding. You do not, you do not draw sophisticated people from Evanston and Skokie and Wilmette and the north side of Chicago without depth in what you're saying on Sunday morning. Depth of engagement with the biblical text and depth of engagement with application to people's real everyday lives. You don't draw students from Northwestern University by simply saying something on Sunday morning. You have to actually have something to say. You don't draw seminarians from Trinity without profound theological engagement. You don't draw fervent evangelical students from Moody Bible Institute without a fire in your belly. You have to have all those things, or this church literally wouldn't be here. The Free Church planted seven or eight churches in this area all at once back around 1987. This is one of only two that made it beyond the first couple of years, and he is the single most important reason why. I don't want to give you the impression that the why and the reason you should be grateful to him is just because he was a great preacher. The constitution that this church lives under, which has some amazingly, I can say as a pastor, of being exposed to many church constitutions, there are a couple moments of brilliance in there. And this church wouldn't be what it is without those moments of brilliance that Martin co-wrote. He set the vision and the ethos and the identity of this church that endure to this day. And you have to understand what kind of a person this is, too. We couldn't pay him a salary, so to support his family, he worked for Sparkling Spring. And as you may have read in the insert that was supposed to be in your bulletin this morning, Martin has a degenerative muscular disease, or as he once said to me, I have no calves. (laughs) Which is literally true. Now think about what I'm saying. He worked for Sparkling Spring lugging big, huge jugs of water into office buildings to fill their water coolers because we couldn't pay him. The laid-back Californian, who outwardly nothing appeared to bother, was so upset as a pastor one time about how difficult and painful a particular situation was in the church and how hard it was affecting people that he went home after an elder meeting and threw up. So it wasn't just what you got on Sunday morning, outstanding as that was. It was what you got from the man and the person that has contributed to what this church is today and the fact that it is even here today. If you appreciate this church, even if you've never met this man, you owe him a debt of gratitude because it would not be what it is. In fact, it wouldn't even be here if it were not for him. So here's my application this morning. I can't ask you to applaud at the end of Martin's sermon. That's dangerous. He was doing a series of messages on the Sermon on the Mount one time, and I don't know where we were, Matthew 5 or 6 or somewhere, and he began his pastoral prayer at the end with, Lord, thank you today for this great sermon. (laughs) We're fairly certain that he meant the Sermon on the Mount and not (laughs) his sermon, but I... But I can't be 100% sure, and so who knows, he may get to the end this morning and start with, Lord, thank you for this great sermon, and then you're not going to feel comfortable clapping, because that's going to be real awkward. So uh, Martin's going to need a little bit of assistance getting up here this morning. Um, as he's being assisted up here, if I've managed to convince you, please give him the standing ovation that he deserves today.
0: Uh, thank you. I do joyfully receive that, uh, as do Jason, as do Ben, as do every soul that has ever helped to pull the plow. Uh, it's fun to be here. Let me tell you how this started for me. I'm sitting in my living room in North Carolina with Scott Ewan. Got on an old t shirt, some old jeans. I wear suspenders in a bakery. Big green stripes. Scott looks at me and says, uh, so do you preach and teach much anymore? Man, I say, no, not really. I'm kind of exotic these days. It's, uh, it's got to be just right. And Scott said, well, we're going to do this EBF 25th thing. Do you want to come and preach for us? And I say, yeah, it'd be fun, but I'm not going to wear a tie. <laughs> uh I wore ties for 18 years, and uh, I don't want to wear a tie. So Scott, being the rare man who actually thinks before he speaks, takes a long look at me and says, well, would you wear a shirt with a collar? (laughs) I don't know if you heard that, wear a shirt with a collar was what he said. So uh, Scott, I don't know if you're still here. Do I look all right, Scott? Scott? Well, I tell you, you guys look great. You know, no one's gained any weight. No one's got any more gray hair. You ladies uh, are beautiful and radiant. The guys, you know, we're doing all right. So uh, it's fun to be here. Thank you for inviting me. It's, uh, It's a lot of fun. But we have the afternoon to talk about other things. Let's pray and get into God's Word. Father, your word is living and active, just release it to do what it needs to do today. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. The sermon is called A Peak at the Last Page, and uh, I, and I'm sure many of you here love to read. And why do you do that? Well, for me, it's when I fall in love with a character and I want to make sure they make it to the end or everything is just so bad that i got to just get to the end and find out if it's going to be okay. It might be that I'm just bored and I want to get there. What I want to do today is just go to the end. Past the great tribulation, the raptures, the resurrections, however all that stuff works out, I want to go all the way to the end to take a look at the last page. If you have a Bible, turn to Revelation chapter 21. We're going to look at verses 1 through 4. John's vision, he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. Now what I want to do is I want to take you through three large movements from the beginning of the Bible to the end. And the first of these large movements I want you to see is from an earthly garden to a heavenly city. You know, when you hold your Bible, you know what Bible means? Bible means what? A book. It is an extraordinary thing that the Bible starts with Genesis, creation, and ends with Revelation, the redemption of all things. It is a single story. Now, Aristotle told us every story has a beginning, a middle, and an end, right? Okay, so it has a beginning, creation, It has a middle, the fall and its ramifications, and the end, which is redemption. And so our story begins in an earthly garden. Now, uh, my Christian story kind of begins the same way. Many of you know I used to hang out where? Yeah. When I was 22 years old, I was living and working in Yosemite National Park. Grew up as a teenager in the 70s in California. And in Yosemite, I was living a life that was very monastic. It was very full of solitude, a lot of beauty. And it wasn't because I was reading the Bible. It was because I was reading Walden. John Muir read Walden a lot. At the time, it was a book that I read very thoroughly. You got to pay attention. Now... From this sort of milieu comes Christianity. And you know what my first thoughts of heaven were? I'm going to backpack with Jesus. I'm going to go to heaven. We're going to wander through Yosemite and sit by streams. I'm going to have a nylon string guitar and we're going to sing folk songs. We're going to sit by the fire at lakes and Jesus is going to teach me stuff. This is true, is what I thought. And that's very sentimental, that's very innocent and all, but it's not at all biblical. Because you see, I wanted the story to go backward. I wanted the story to go back to the garden. Humanity's story is not to go back to the garden. A lot of people want humanity's story to go back to the garden. There was a rather minor social event in 1969 called Woodstock, a rather minor event, and uh, a lot of songs got written about Woodstock. But one of them was by one of the various versions of Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young slash Joni e. Mitchell, and it was called Stardust. And in Stardust, the chorus goes like this: We are stardust, we are golden, we are billion-year-old carbon, and we got to get ourselves back to the garden. Can you hear that wonderful Crosby, Stills, and Nash, Young Harmony? Love it. Then in the final chorus, they say we are stardust, we are golden, we are caught in the devil's bargain, and we got to go back to the garden. But the story does not go back to a garden. More recently, I was channel surfing and came across a very fascinating show called Life Without People on the History Channel was rather captivated by that title. So uh, I went online and read about it, and this is, what it, uh, this is what it said. I quote from their website, Humans won't be around forever. That is evolutionary dogma. That is not Christian faith, as we shall see. And now we can see in detail for the first time, they sound pretty happy about this, the world that will be left behind in life without people and you know what the show was happily someday we evolve or all die and that's great that's a fantastic thing and the world and nature takes back cities and you know you have deer in central park and we're not we're gone they want to move the story back and stories never go You don't go back. Guys, even without the fall, think about this. God told Adam and Eve in Genesis 1 to have dominion over the earth and fill it. In other words, leave the garden, fill the earth, use it, subdue it, make it a fit habitation for man. Even without the fall, we're not going back. But with the fall, we're definitely not going back. So where are we going? From an earthly garden to a heavenly city. John says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Later on, Revelation describes a huge city, 1,400 miles wide. It's described as a cube, actually. Imagine a city from the eastern seaboard to Colorado, Canada to the tip of Florida, and sort of lift that cube out of the earth, and they're that pure city, pure city. Star Trek fans, think Borg Cube, (laughs) but much, much larger and glorious, not evil. Minor point there, but very important. When I became a Christian, I need to turn to the last page to be corrected. See, I was unaware of this transition when I became a Christian. I had accepted it by the time I was with you folks in EVF, and now I embrace it. I love that God is moving toward a city. And if you read the Bible, it's not terribly surprising that there are cities everywhere. I could talk a lot about this, but just some examples. The cities of refuge in the Old Testament. Vivid portrayal of salvation. Folly and wisdom in the book of Proverbs do not fight in the country. They do not fight in a garden. Folly and wisdom fight in the middle of a city in the book of Proverbs. I don't want to make too much about this, but think about Christ. Born rural, country, ends his earthly life just outside the city. And, of course, the book of Acts is a travelogue about cities. New Testament books are written to cities because a city is just where a lot of people live. And if God loves people, he's going to really love a place where there's a whole lot of people. And that's why there's this strange phrase here, there was no sea. This is what I think is going on there. Heaven is the perfect place for us to live. Do we live in oceans? Do we live in seas? No, we're not. So we don't need that anymore. Because it's perfect for us to live. Now, sometimes when I talk about these things to people, they say to me, Martin, you know, you're not getting it. You know, this whole idea of of movement toward a city, uh, human dominion, that's just, it's not going to save us. And that's true. But it's really not saying a whole lot if you think about it. You know, there are many things we enjoy that do not save us. You know, uh, baths. You know, a bath does not save me but I hear from Rebecca that she rather likes when I take them. (laughs) And that's a good thing. Food does not save me. But I love it when people do a good job and prepare it and put it out on a table and there's friends and family. And, you know, if we believe that only Christ saves us, then everything else does not. So I was really not saying it. But it is wrong to say that human achievement will save us, but it's also wrong to despise it. Boy, there are so many things I love that I am amazed that people can do. I could talk about airplanes. I could talk about my iPod. I love it. I could talk about spaceships. But I'm going to tell you about my cell phone. I have a flip phone. It's very old. But you know why? I'm never going to get rid of my flip phone. My sons have these one screen phones. I guess they're iPhones or whatever. And I I don't want that. Do you know why? I'm going to share with you my silly masculine soul. Because you see, some of you are going to think, Martin, I can explain cell phones to you. You know, it's the xenon rays go through the atmosphere, and they go through the Gucci Gucci complex, and you know they come out. And a guy, I, I don't want to know. I'm glad you know, and I honor you and respect you for knowing. But I think it's magic. <laughs> because you know what I'm thinking when my cell phone rings? It's the Enterprise. And they're in an awful mess. (laughs) Only their captain can save them. So I pick up my flip phone. (laughs) And I say, yes, human Rand, how may I help you? You know, I was sitting around last night, and I needed to talk to Max. and He was just across the table, and I was trying to save my voice, so I didn't want to yell. And I just picked this thing up, and I went, And in like two seconds, right over there, Max's light goes off, and whatever bizarre ringtone he has for me sounds off. Do you realize how extraordinary that is? What I'm trying to say plainly is this. We are not to preserve creation untouched so that creation can be saved by our removal. We are to use creation until our redemption in a heavenly city. We dragging on the first one? All right, let's go on. Second big wave from the hostility of death to the glory of resurrection. Just six words in this text that are incredibly important. There will be no more death. All right, rhetorical question. You don't, you don't need to say out loud, but just in your spirit, answer this question quickly, and then if you need to, think about it. Okay, you ready? Is death part of life? Now, some of you are thinking about that question, and that's good. Now, if you said, well, Martin, if you said death is part of fallen life, you would be absolutely correct. But it is wrong to say that death is part of life. And your most classic example would be God, who is alive but never dies. Do you know I've found as I've done this Christian thing for some time now? Do you know what the hardest verse I believe for Christians to believe It's one we say all the time. It's Romans 6.33. Does anybody know Romans 6.33, the first half of that verse? You can say it out loud. Who knows that verse? The wages of sin is death. death. Do you really believe that? Most of us do not. Most of us are much more comfortable saying the wages of sin... um, should be maybe a good spanking. For the wages of sin should be a scolding from God. But do you believe that the wages of sin is death, separation from God? Now, this heresy of universalism just plagues and corrupts churches constantly would be stopped in its tracks if we simply believed that half of that verse. And if you're struggling with universalism and you're wondering if it would be better in the end if God's love saved everybody and there was no hell, let's make sure you understand that your problem is not that you are struggling with the meaning of God's love. You are disrespecting God's truth. The wages of sin is death. Death. Now, if we say there will be no more death, and the wages of sin is death, and we ask right now, what is Christ doing about it? That has to take us to 1 Corinthians 15, 26. And I want to read you what I find to be an extraordinary verse. It's talking about how Christ has fulfilled his purpose through the resurrection. And then Paul says this, The last enemy to be destroyed is death. I mean, Christ won at the resurrection. It's done. I mean, he obliterated Satan. It's he died for our sins. It's, from a, from a sort of heavenly standpoint, the war is over. But it still continues because he's still defeating death. Death is not a part of life. We need to accept it is an enemy. We need to fight. Can I say that if the last enemy that Christ faced is death, that maybe we can join him in fighting death? And guys, I'm, you know, part of the thing about EDF is we tell each other the truth. And I I am haunted by the church and by the world because we have lost the idea that death is caused by sin. Or even that death is bad. I cannot tell you how this troubles me. Guys, do you know, and I thought about this, most of you weren't even born in nineteen seventy three. In the summer of nineteen seventy three, the Supreme Court ruled on Roe v. Wade Doe versus Bolton. And it said, We as a nation can now kill babies. And nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. You know, since I left the ministry to go be a baker, I have probably heard 250 sermons in very good evangelical churches. And in that entire time, I've heard one mention of abortion for about 30 seconds as a sub-point. And guys, I want you to understand something. It is not okay to kill babies. Okay? It is not okay to kill babies. It is not okay to kill babies. And if you read your Bibles, you would know this. Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 1. Do you know he was doing sort of a sex selection abortion? There were too many Jews. So he says to the Hebrew midwives, when a boy comes out, kill it. You can leave the girls. And guys, I love Advent. But you know what I don't hear being taught in Advent. The slaughter of the innocents. You know, the way most people do Advent, Herod sounds like a great guy. Wise men come to town. Herod says, hey, where's his where Jesus at? And the wise men go, well, Bethlehem. And Herod says, awesome, I want to go and worship him. High five, see you later, bye. End of story. But it's not. He wanted to know about Jesus so he could kill him, And so he sends men to slaughter boys. And you know what, what troubles me so much about this is that you cannot compromise with death. I think the agreement that we've all sort of made is, you know, you keep your killing over there in Planned Parenthood, and, and you, just, you just do your thing, and we just won't pay attention, and we'll just let everything go. And I tell you, that will not happen. Proverbs say there are four things that never have enough, and the first is death. And I, I guarantee you that if what we are doing does not change, at the 50th anniversary of the Evanston Bible Fellowship, euthanasia will be as common as abortion. The arguments are the same. The philosophy is the same. Say, so why do you know that, Martin? Let me just give you one one illustration. I loved the show House. I just just was intrigued beyond belief by House. And in the last season, they flirted and even danced with euthanasia constantly, until finally at the very last episode, 13, during House's eulogy, eulogy, a good word about House, says, House was kind of a twisted loving man. I mean, after all, he agreed to off me when my time came. Now, for those of you who are old fuddy-duddies like myself, can you imagine Marcus Welby, M.D., saying that? And that's just one generation. And guys, this is why I need to see the last page. I need to be encouraged. Because John says to me, there will be no more death. And to that I say, thank you. Thank you for winning. And how do we win? By the glory of resurrection. So well, let's stay in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 15 is an amazing thing. Now, guys, what is resurrection? If death is the bad stuff, what is the good stuff? First of all, resurrection is not merely resuscitation. And that's what goes on in the medical shows, right? You know, the guy's blood pressure stops. He's not breathing. I, I feel like I, I could almost do this crash cart. You know, let's start at 80. Sh-sh, clear. 100. You know, oh, 100. I mean, how, they did that every episode in house. I mean, I saw it a thousand times. That's just resuscitation. And follow me on this. Even the people Jesus resurrected in his ministry were not technically resurrected, they were revivified because they died again. Only one person has been resurrected, and that is Christ. A resurrection, then, is a transformation into a completely different kind of life. Now, when Paul describes this life in 1 Corinthians 15, he makes these comparisons. Listen to them. The body that is sown is perishable, but is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Now let's put all those four things together. When I am in my resurrection body, I will be immortal. I am sorry, life without people. I ain't going anywhere. I am immortal, glorious, powerful, and spiritual meaning that I have a body that is fit for spiritual life. Now, many of you say to me, Martin, tell me how you're doing. Well, I'll tell you. Having charcoal marie tooth sucks. I had in my notes a long time that I should say it stinks. But having the flu stinks. Having... A peripheral neuropathy that is progressive, that's going to get worse every day I'm alive for the rest of my life, sucks. But I'm okay. And I'll tell you why. Shark or Marie Tooth is temporary. Resurrection is permanent. Now, I think about heaven now and I want to do three things. I read those scenes on the Crystal Sea worshiping God, and I want to be there. I, I'm going to put in my day planner. I want to spend my first million years worshiping God. Just, I just want to do that. And I don't want to say there will come a time in heaven when I get tired of do that. I'm going to just say that I want to express my worship in a different way. And then you know what I want to do? I want to run. Yeah, I love Forrest Gump. Forrest Gump's a great movie. And uh, he's sitting on a porch one day, and all of a sudden he just starts to run. And I just burst into tears every time I see that. Because I want to do that. And I'm going to do that. I'm going to run around the whole world. I'm going to just run like Forrest Gump. And if you want to come along with me like people did, great. We can think of slogans for t shirts and all that and have a great time. (laughs) And you know what else I want to do? I want to dance. Because I love music, and I just, I feel music so passionately. And I'd like to dance, but I can't, but I'm gonna. So ladies, (laughs) uh, if you love Victorian novels as I do, my card will never be full. Just come and see me. Maybe I'll take a million years and do that too. Now here's my point. When I thought about backpacking with Jesus, that was wrong. What I just described to you is not sentimental. It is a very, very plausible, real vision of the way heaven really will be. Do you understand the difference? Good. Finally, a last thing, and we'll handle this briefly. From the angst of exile to the presence of God, you cannot read a story without there being some kind of theme about leaving home or finding home or not being able to get home or never having a home. It was easy to find, you know, illustrations. The Wizard of Oz. Dorothy has to leave home to come back home to appreciate it. The Best Days of Our Lives, classic uh, film, black and white, about three men from uh, World War II coming back to find their own way home. E.T. All he wants to do is phone home. Then turn to identity, stories about who, who am I? Where do I come from? Why do I feel so out of place? The Truman Show, a movie about a guy who thinks he's in a movie and finds out that people are watching him as we are watching him. The born identity, the blind side. Who am I? And guys, this is a serious problem for our evolutionary friends. Think about this with me. If it is true that we are the result of tiny, tiny modifications, genetic modifications that that match the environment, as the environment changes, all these little tiny little adaptations, and that we are the result of literally millions, if not billions of these little tiny adaptations that fit the environment they're in, follow me on this, then where does this come from? It seems to me that after a million or billion years, we should be rather comfortable here. But the most common heartache of man is we're not. I am not home yet. Genesis 4 through, 11, or through Revelation 21 cries out to us that we're lost. And guys, we cannot know who we are until we know who God is. And so we have to move from the saints of exile to the presence of God. In Genesis 3, God says, where are you? In Revelation 21, he says, I'm here. Now, I'm going to read this verse again, and I want you to think about identity and home. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. We are the bride of Christ. That is who we are. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place, God's home, is now among the people, and he will dwell, live, have their home with them. They will be his people. We are God's people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. But yet we're not there yet. We're still fallen. And you know the best definition I've ever seen for fallen is this? To be fallen means that we'll do anything except worship God. It's really no more simple than that. To be fallen means we want nothing to do with God. We're okay with religion, but God is an entirely different matter. You know, sometimes I think that Christianity actually helps this. This is not... I'm not criticizing, it's just an observation. And we say to people, we can help you with your family, and we can help you with your kids, and we can help you with your money, and we can. But the heart and soul of Christianity is to be able to look at somebody and say, you can know God. You can know your creator. You can know the God who makes Yosemite. And all that stuff you see in the Hubble telescope is is his handiwork. You can know God. So let me ask you a question, rhetorical. Do you like God? Not do you love him. That's too, you're going to answer yes to that way too quickly. (laughs) Do you like him? But another way. Say the people who have the authority to say this, or to come to you this afternoon and say, Tomorrow, you, you can do anything you want. You can be with, a, with whoever you want. But all tomorrow, you, you need to have your soul set toward God. You just need to rest in and enjoy God for a day. Would you be excited about that? Or would you be. You know, I'd rather go to work. And I don't want you to feel bad if you say in the latter, because we're still fallen. We're still grappling with sin. But guys, who you are is tuned to rest in God, and nothing else will satisfy until you do so. Heaven is about. God, and there are these last few words we'll talk about this morning that just, I read these words and they just, just blow me away that God is this kind of God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And you know, when I read the Bible, I want to see it. And so I read this that he will wipe away tears. And you know, just just imagine this. See this with your soul. This is a very personal thing. People do not wipe away your tears from a distance, they do they? I mean, Jesus has got to be right here for him to wipe away my tears. And in my meditations on this, I I see myself in heaven standing before Christ. And there's nothing in here about sin, nothing in here about my sin. I mean, my sin is forgiven. But Jesus looks at me, and he knows my life just like he knows yours. And he knows all the junk and the crap and the residue and just the, the pain of living a fallen life. And I just feel him reaching into my soul, and it's just like he's pulling all this junk out of me. He's just pulling it out of me. And I'm feeling myself becoming who I was meant to be. And so I weep, and Jesus wipes my tears. Hmm. That's good stuff. You know, when Walden uh, Thoreau said... The mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. You've probably heard this quote. I don't. Now, I freely confess to moments of despair, even short seasons of it. But a life of quiet desperation? No, 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 no. And there's one main reason I don't. This story will end, death will be conquered, and God will win. And I know that. I know that. Now, I love J.R.R. Tolkien, love the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And as he's finishing up in Return of the King, it's almost hard to read because Sam and Frodo, they're just Everything is just awful. It's just beyond. It's just hard. You just don't want to read it anymore because you think it can't get any worse. And Tolkien just just trashes it until you know the ring's too heavy, and Frodo's losing it, and Gollum's doing all of his stuff, and there's no food, and there's no water. Mount Doom is still a gazillion miles away, and they're just they're, it's horrible. And then he writes this, and I, I remember, I can see when I read this paragraph. Sam goes outside and just listen to this at night. Peeping among the crowd, cloud rake, above a dark tower high up in the mountains, Sam saw a white star twinkle for a moment. The beauty of it smote his heart as he looked up out of the forsaken land and hope returned to him. For like a shaft clear and cold, the thought pierced him, that in the end, the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. Yeah! And I submit to you that the Apostle Paul could even do this with greater brevity. Evanston Bible Fellowship, all I want to say to you today is this. The day of our salvation is nearer now than the day we first believed. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for truly the greatest story ever told and for an ending that is glorious, powerful, and eternal. We give you thanks and we yearn for the day when we will walk on these golden streets according to your most holy word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.